Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain and Logistics podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamariu, Global Logistics and Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Specializing in global board level and executive search, my job is also to connect you with global experts, thought leaders and executives in all things supply chain. And today I am delighted to have with us Dr. Yossi Sheffi, Professor of Engineering Systems at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he serves as director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. Professor Sheffi is an expert in systems optimization, risk analysis, and supply chain management, which are the subjects he teaches and researches at MIT. He is the author of many scientific publications and five books, Urban, Urban Transportation Networks, uh, Equilibrium Analysis with Mathematical Programming Methods, The Resilient Enterprise, Overcoming Vulnerability for Competitive Advantage, published in 2005, Logistics Clusters, Delivering Value and Driving Growth, published in 2012, The Power of Resilience and How the Best Companies Manage the Unexpected, published in 2015, as well as his latest book, Balancing Green, When to Embrace Sustainability in a Business and When Not to, published this year in 2018. Under his leadership, MIT uh, Center of Transportation and Logistics launched many new educational research and industry and government outreach programs, leading to substantial growth. He founded uh, the STX MicroMasters in Supply Chain Manager Management and is also the founder and the director of MIT's Master of Supply Chain Management degree. He also led the international expansion of MIT by launching the uh, MIT Center of uh, Transportation and Logistics by launching the Supply Chain and Logistics Excellence Scale, in short, global network of academic centers of education and research. The network currently includes centers modeled after MIT, um, CTL in Zaragoza, Spain, Bogota in Colombia, Luxembourg, Ningbo in China, as well as Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Outside the university, Professor Sheffi has consulted with governments and leading manufacturing, retail and transportation enterprises all over the world. And he's also an active entrepreneur and has founded and co-founded five successful companies. Professor Sheffi, it is an hour, our honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for this introduction. <laughs> our pleasure. Um, so let's, uh, let's uh, uh, dive in a little bit and, and talk first about your latest book, Balancing Green, uh, When to Embrace Sustainability in a Business and When Not to. Um, basically, uh, as far as we know, you have, uh, you have done extensive interviews with more than 100 executives and looked at challenges, solutions, and implications of balancing traditional business goals with sustainability. Tell us a little bit, what's a realistic overview of how executives should think about these issues? Um, executives are kind of being attacked from all sides. In one sense, they need to um, provide profits, they need to provide growth, they need to uh, provide employment, they need to provide goods. On the other hand, people want them to, to make sure that the uh, company is secure, that they, they take care of uh, environmental issues, they take care of social issues, lately even political issues. So companies are always under pressure. And one has to realize that the, or NGOs and other groups who are applying this pressure should realize that it's actually not up to companies to, uh, to be environmental holder of the flags. Uh, companies have to respond to what the customers want, what the consumer want. It turns out only very few people are willing to pay for sustainable product. While to be sure, in all kinds of um, interviews and uh, questionnaires, 
lots of people say they are willing to pay for more sustainable product. Turns out when you do actual experiments in supermarkets and other places, you find five to 10% people are willing to pay a little, uh, pay more. And even in this case, just a little more for sustainable product. So companies should not do in some sense too much because uh, until the market will change, they cannot do too much. And if the market change, of course, companies will respond. That's their reason for being. Yes, yes. And then that's an excellent, uh, excellent point, And thank you for that. Um, and I think it's a it's a central point of of your writings because uh, for companies, sustainability is not a simple case of profits versus planet, but it's it's more of a subtle issue, right? Of of people versus other people. You know, lo- those looking for jobs and inexpensive goods versus those are who are maybe looking for a pristine and and safe and and uh, environment for the future for the future of their generation. So the the question is how far one should go with uh, with sustainability in the first place. Okay. As I said the point is that until people are first of all until people are willing uh, are willing to pay for it companies should be very careful in effect to going some but not too much. The idea is um, so what should company uh, companies be doing? They are actually, whether executive believe that it's a Chinese hoax or the challenge of our times, doesn't actually matter. That's one of the points in my book. It doesn't matter the personal belief of the executive because there are reasons to do it, whether you believe it or, believe it or not. And, but there are also reasons not to do, not to go too far. The reasons to do it are that, first of all, many sustainability initiatives also lead to reduce costs. The poster child for this is uh, cutting energy. Whether you are installing, you know, um, uh, windmills or uh, uh, all kind of, or, or, or change light bulbs or put regulators on your truck so they cannot go too fast. All of this lead to reduction in energy use and reduction in cost. So this is a win-win situation. You reduce carbon footprint, and you reduce cost. There's no reason not to do these things. The, uh, the second reason to do something and make sure that you are not an outlier who does nothing is risk management. You don't want to be the subject of attack by uh, NGO. And there are many cases uh, detailed in my book and elsewhere, of course, of uh, NGO attack that were caught in, catching the media attention and then leading to reduced sales and uh, loss of um, Loss of market value. So you want to do some things just to make sure that you are not a target of NGO and the media. The third reason to do it is some hedging. There are some evidence that the young people, millennials, are more attuned to environmental concerns than older people. So in that sense, one should uh, one should hedge, hedge, hedge their bets. And there are many examples. For example, Clorox started the, a whole line of uh, envir- environmentally sustainable product, which they call um, Greenworks. This is a $40 million you know, line of, of products, which is for an $8 billion company. It's, it's a round of error. But it lets them understand the chemistry, understand suppliers, understand uh, consumer in this market. So if the market changes, it's not clear that it will, but if it changes, they are well positioned. So these are some of the reasons that people should do it. But as I said, you cannot go too far. You cannot invest your way out of profitability because if customers are not going to buy the goods, it doesn't matter.
Yes, yes, and and excellent. I mean, thank you for the for the summary. So, if I can recap in 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 short, there's three big and main reasons why why companies really need to look into this. Uh, one is, of course, cutting costs, reducing costs. Another one is reducing their risks of exposure to NGOs, and another one is is some sort of uh, combination of hedging and and achieving growth. Um, and and also that combined with the fact that uh, that you were saying just now that, that that companies are kind of under pressure from from all these sides, um, and you you gave a very good example in the book I think where you talked about uh, also specifically about Walmart right where they where Walmart worked with various stakeholders to develop seafood certification programs that actually support this sustainability. But then uh, in 2015, uh, Greenpeace uh, actually attacked Walmart because uh, they were not doing enough. Uh, as as, as uh, in this situation, uh, on, on the other side of the story, where the Alaskan fishermen and, and state officials were complaining to Walmart that the company was asking too much of them. So, I mean, I guess the question is, what's the best way to go around it or to go about it? Well, sure. In this particular case, which is an example of you know the no-win situation that companies are facing in this particular example um, Walmart reduced the standards in fact and they were responsive to the Alaskan fishermen and the argument uh, that they made at the time was that the, the fishermen are going to sell their fish so the question is are going to sell it through Walmart with some environmental uh, restrictions or sell it on the open market with no environmental restriction. So Walmart decided to discount or reduce their stringent requirements, just bowing to the fact that uh, fish are going to be sold whether Walmart sells them or a competitor sells them. But in general, it means that companies should, as I say, should do something, but not too much, either because in this case, the supply, but in most cases, it's because customers are not willing to pay for it. So, should do some, but not too much. Yes, I mean uh, it, it boils down, and I, I, I think we we hear your message very loud and clear. It boils down to practicality, right? It's uh, you can't be too Absolutely. too far away from the from the market. You got to keep your your feet on the ground and 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 be realistic about it. And whilst you know everybody wants and and of course cares about the environment, if if ultimately your your customer and your consumer is not going to be to be paying for it, you can't sustain the business uh, for the let's long run. Let, let me add a point here and just follow up on uh, uh, on your good summary. The issue is some people cast it as a moral issue. You know, it's morally you have to do it. The minute it cuts, it, it cuts a moral issue, the debate is over. And, and, and I've had many cases when they presented it and people very angrily told me that it's a moral issue and one has to do it, it's the right thing to do. At this point, the debate is over and that's, that's an example of losing the debate because people who don't want to do it will stay in their opinion and people who you know, who, want, who care about environment will stay in their opinion just like Democrats and Republicans in the, US, in the US not talking to each other and not finding any solution. You cannot cast it as a moral issue because then if you say it's a moral issue, you mean that I'm immoral. Nobody is immoral here. Both sides are right. Both people who want jobs and uh, being able to afford goods and people who want pristine environment, they are both right. So we need to talk to each other and find practical solutions.
basically. Yes, excellent, excellent add-on. Um, and and uh, and and just to add to the point, because you you mentioned it that, that that you're seeing more and more that younger people are more environmentally aware. They are more uh, yes uh, susceptible, I guess, to to care and look at you know where are the goods coming from. Uh, are they from a sustainable source? Uh, what's your views? I mean, on the long term, and obviously Generation Y. Gen- I mean, the younger generations are more and more going to uh, take over the market, aren't they, as, as buyers and consumers? Uh, what's your views in on the longer term? Let's say 10, 20, 30 years from now. Okay, the the joke among you know political scientists is that young people are Democrats and old people are Republicans, and it's the same people. As people grow. <laughs> Yeah. As people as, as people grow older and as people get more means and as people get money, they become more concerned about money and less concerned about ideals. It's not clear if this will happen in this case too. Um, what what may happen is that uh, we may have more storms and more flooding, and it will get into the consciousness of most people. And people will be willing to pay for it. People will uh, will cry for more regulation, whatever. And we will see some change change in the market. Right now, the people there are two issues. First of all, the people who care most for the young people don't have money, so they don't move markets. The second issue that one should not forget is that two thirds of the world are living on a few dollars a day and can't even afford to think about environmental sustainability. We have a whole issue of the developing world that is not there, and most consumers in that part of the world can't even think about it. For them, it's a luxury good. So let's get realistic about how much the market can move in the next 10, 20 years, later maybe. And as I said, the one thing that I see can move the market is if it becomes more apparent that uh, global warming is dangerous. And right now, when there's some, uh, you know, white bears on uh, on the Arctic, are not really making an impact yet. Yes. If there'll be if there'll be an impact of we see places like Shanghai being flooded or New York, I think this will make more of an impact, and we may start seeing more uh, uh, more of an awareness but uh, it will be a while yes yes excellent i mean and hopefully it won't be too late because sometimes <laughs> some of these things <laughs> do happen and and and, and it is quite well, yeah, and yeah. don't forget don't forget that in the meantime a lot of people are working about technology from carbon sequestration to all kind of other technologies that can we may have a technological solution yes so this is we should, we should not forget it. And there are many things that have to do with supply chain, like 3D printing, that may lead to a lot less um, a, a lot less transportation because you'll, uh, you'll be manufacturing locally. There will be with very few uh, very suppliers, just suppliers of, uh, of raw material without not too many tiers of uh, um, in the bill of material. So it's... Uh, there are some things that can that may change change the picture in terms of, of technology, yeah. but it will be a while. Yes, yes. Um, and and coming back a little bit to the 
to the price premium, right? That that typically comes with uh, with uh, with uh, more sustainable uh, goods or produced goods, um, and it, it, this is also related to to uh, to the brand, right? Because typically the brand uh, symbolizes quality or symbolizes uh, youth or other desirable attributes. Uh, for example, if we take Forbes valuation of the Coca Cola brand, right, which is over fifty billion, uh, based on the brand contribution to sales, um, it's it's an incredibly powerful brand. Uh, but this brings us to the question, you know, are companies that, that have this type of very valuable brands particularly susceptible to pressure from the non-governmental organizations and their campaigns? Uh, and, and who else would be susceptible to this? What's your views? The, the answer is categorically yes. And by the way, this uh, internal estimate by these companies like Coca-Cola and Disney and uh, Apple and others are even higher than the Forbes estimate. Mm. So they they think that the brand is is everything, uh, or or you know count for most of their uh, market value. So companies are sustainable. of course companies who are it's not only brand company who are selling to consumers and they have a brand. So like like Coca Cola, like Disney, also in particular companies who sell to children. So toy companies people care about this. Um, so it's a this is people want to feel that these companies care about everything, about the environment, about social responsibility, about everything else. Um, so these are there is some uh, vulnerability here. Other companies are vulnerable are companies like um, like the companies have very deep bill of material. Because and have many many suppliers because it's enough that one of these suppliers will do something bad and usually the NGO will attack the original equipment manufacturer the the, the consumer facing company rather than the uh, uh, the offending supplier somewhere in the bowels of I don't know Vietnam or Malaysia or Asia or, or China uh, or whatever. Last thing which is really interesting is companies that have no halo effect. Companies like Amazon. Amazon turns out have, uh, you know, working for Amazon, whether along the supply chain, it's uh, it's supplier Foxconn, for example, makes the echo, um, you know, the speaker, listener, whatever you call it, the, the AI device that uh, goes into home with horrible working conditions. Also working conditions in uh, Amazon warehouse in Europe and the United States are really bad. Yet Amazon is a company that everybody loves. Everybody buys Amazon. So some attacks, the attacks does not, they are being attacked, but the media doesn't pick it up. It doesn't stick. So companies that don't have the halo, there are very few companies that have, like Amazon, Apple, and a few others that consumers simply love. Um, so if you are selling to consumers, if you are an area that, if you are a, a company that they uh, not particularly love, and if you have deep tier supply chain where some suppliers may be hiding in tier three, four, five, and you don't even know about them, and once they do something bad, pollute the local river or use uh, uh, forced labor, you are being uh, attacked. These are the companies that are at risk. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent examples. And uh, um, and this this uh, this makes me remember the um, an, another example. And I think it's a company that did tremendously 
well uh, on this on this topic. It's it's Unilever. So if you if you remember, Professor, I mean, they started they embarked on this journey. I think a couple of years ago when they made the vision of the company to be extremely uh, focused on the communities that they served and also in terms of their supply chain to go green and. Uh, and basically, I think they, they moved towards zero waste. Uh, I think their target was something like 2020, 2020 or 2025, and they already managed to achieve it, so which was fantastic. But I think their initial, um, their initial intent was actually deeply rooted in this argument. I mean, I don't know if you want to call it an argument, but it's basically a fundamental that they want to be seen and perceived as a company that cares about the, the environment, cares about the, the community and so on. Yeah, and they do a lot. In fact, uh, Paul Polman, it, it started with Paul Polman, the, uh, the current CEO, took over several years back, six, seven years ago. Uh, he, he really started it. And it kind of, the company does some tremendous things, for example, with the, uh, the, 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 the biggest tea producer in the world. And they take a lot of care in terms of uh, not only using sustainable growing um procedures they're also educating the tea growers the plantation how to do better so both to get higher yields and do it in a more sustainable fashion i should make one comment however about a year ago two years ago the financial time had an article that said that during paul pullman tenure the um, unilever stock went up 40 percent that's good until you realize that the um that the stock of all the competing companies on the average went up 100%. And they say this may be, maybe they put too much emphasis on uh, on sustainability. But by and large, Unilever throughout the company, they, they really care about this and they seem to be trying to do to do the right thing. Yes, yeah. And it's, by the way, in, term, in terms of big companies, they're really out there in front. Yes. Yes, um, and then and then shifting a little bit, and, and, and I know you you argued the case, or there, there is a case in the in the book that sustainability is in fact a supply chain issue. Um, so I have to ask. Oh, sure. I have to ask the question: Why 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 do you argue uh, argue that it is a supply chain issue? In fact, okay. Let let me give you a few examples. Coca Cola, for example, said that they they care about water use. Of course, that's the you know the main environmental impact. And they claimed that they, not only claimed, they were proudly uh, uh, making the case that they reduced the number of liters per liter of Coke from about 6.2 or 6.3 to about 3.5. Almost 50% reduction in the number of liters of water used to make a liter of Coke in the bottling plant. At the same time, they used over 220 liters of water growing the um, sugar cane that is used for the sugar in the Coke. So it's saying that they are, you know, reducing by three liters. It's nothing. Uh, Apple talks all the time. Companies like Apple or Microsoft or Cisco, they don't make any product. It's very easy for them to be, um, you know, not to have a large carbon footprint. But you have to include the carbon footprint and the processes and their suppliers at Foxconn, at Flex, whoever makes their product, because otherwise uh, they are responsible for it. If Apple sells iPhone and the entire supply chain that makes the part, gets the stuff, the uh, commodities from the ground is part of it. Because what you have to look at is, let's say if there will be no iPhone, then you will not have this entire supply chain. So it's a really a supply chain issue. By the way, for many companies, 
over two thirds of their uh, carbon footprint is in their supply chain. For some companies, most of the carbon foot is in the use phase when the customers uh, get it. For example, when you talk about detergents, uh, whether it's Procter Gamble or Unilever, most of the carbon footprint are heating the hot water for the laundry. And this may be 70% of the carbon footprint is just heating the hot water. So you have to think, to think about the entire supply chain from the mine, all the, all the stages of supply, to the OEM who makes it, to the distribution, to the customer who is using it. And by the way, companies are trying to do something about it. For example, I managed the example um, of detergents. Some detergent manufacturers are having cold wash detergents that you can wash in somewhat colder water, not really cold, but lukewarm water. And they try to push it. Consumers are not buying it, unfortunately. It's a tiny part of the market, which is another example why it is so hard. Because consumers say they care, but they're not willing to either pay more or adjust the processes to be more sustainable. Yes. Oh, excellent, excellent examples. And I think it's, 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 it's crucial. And a lot of, a lot of times it's... it's um um, it's just a reality that we get lost in the details, but uh, indeed, I mean, uh, supply chains are are the moving force, right? And we we gotta we gotta look at the overall ecosystem, not just the the piece that we see in front yes. of us. Uh, so that's that's a that's a good uh, that's a good uh, point that that you you highlighted. Um, and and I know that uh, you talk a lot, and I think you you've spoken about them in the book. There's I mean, they're kind of a flagship, really, a brand that is doing uh, doing good, good, doing sustainable. Uh, Patagonia, right? The American clothing company oh, yes. that is. Yes. selling outdoor clothing and 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 really markets its clothing as very sustainably sourced sustainably produced and everything is sustainable of, of course the price is, is a different price point that uh, than uh, than other uh, clothing uh, materials so they sell to people that that care about the environment who care about the environment so, and, and the company is really committed to sustainability mm-hmm. through the supply chain so uh, tell us maybe a little bit and share with our our audience a little bit more about them because you know them really well and 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 I think a lot of people will want to hear more about it so Patagonia is uh, one of a set of several companies that I highlight in my book. They're really committed to sustainability well beyond big companies like uh, Unilever. Just as one example, the director of uh, sustainability in Patagonia has the right, and it's, she's using this right, to veto companies that they think are not sustainable. So for example, in the quarter that I was uh, dealing with them, but uh, two and a half years ago, there were 18 new suppliers that are being uh, qualified. So they're first qualified for capacity, for price, for quality. Yeah. After they were qualified for all of those and they were viable suppliers, they were audited by the sustainability people of, uh, of Patagonia. Out of those 10 were passed, they were fine. Six got conditional pass, which means... They'll be uh, employed, but they got certain time, usually 90 days or 180 days, depending on what kind of violation or what kind of thing Patagonia didn't like in, the, in their practices, they had time to fix it. And two of them were vetoed. Uh, the supply chain, the uh, sustainability people said, we're not going to use those guys because we don't believe them, we don't trust them, that they will actually change. So this is a very... A strong example of company committed to sustainability. In addition to this, if you go to the Patagonia website, you see their entire 
um, set of suppliers for every item that they sell, who the suppliers are, what the processes are. So it's a very, very open system of um, showing the world that they've got nothing to hide. Of course, the garments are costing, they cost more, and they are selling to people who are willing to pay more which means that there'll probably never be a company the size of uh, Nike or uh, Adidas or Unilever or whatever, because they're about, at this point, about $700, $800 million company. And it's a good-sized company, but they'll never be multi-billion multinational because yes. uh, most people are not willing to pay more for product, but there's a segment that... That it is, and that's the segment that Patagonia is selling to, and they are happy to stay this size and not grow to be a giant. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, super. So now, now, if if we had to move on a little bit to questions on a slightly broader area about the future of supply chain and and the top trends that you're seeing, um, we had a good uh, a good question actually from uh, Sneha, which uh, Sneha Susan, which actually was one of your students, um, and she was wondering. Um, or she was saying or she was sharing that some of the major customer pinch points are being resolved by the emergence of, uh, of omni-channel and blockchain. We'll talk about blockchain more in detail later. Um, but she, her question was, what would be the best way to gear ourselves for the change that is ongoing and is to come? Specifically, I would say from a retailer perspective. Yeah, retailers, of course, are under immense pressure from the e-commerce providers, especially Amazon and Alibaba, um, JD.com. Uh, and all the rest because the, the e-commerce retailers don't have any fixed uh, um, assets. They don't tie to, they don't have to pay for all the uh, assets that they have. But actually, the people who do it best are the people who do it in terms of multi-channel or omni-channel. Even Amazon bought, they just bought a, a food supermarket, Whole Foods, and they seem to be doing very well. They are, companies are also, the point is as follows. What customers want, they want to get the stuff fast from wherever. And the question is how to get it fast to them because Amazon is conditioning customers to expect everything in a few hours. In Boston, for example, you order some Amazon product, you get it. Most product you can get in, Two hours. Uh, so other other uh, other retailers have to do the same. Some retailers are using their their um, footprint of uh, retail location to start serving from retail location, but this also has its problem. And furthermore, some customers want to get it at home. Some customer want to pick it up at the store. Some customer want to pick it up at work. All of this is a huge challenge to, uh, to retailers, especially since some of these e-commerce companies are changing so fast, are moving so quickly, and they are very, very innovative, coming up with new products and new services all the time and just increasing the pressure. So um, when the question is, you know, um, what's the best way or... Uh, the issues are that it's not easy to change quickly for companies, and some of the retail companies have been doing something things for a long time. The only company that seems to be fighting back very strongly is Amazon. They bought uh, Jet.com, which is an online provider, 
they have their own uh, walmart.com so they have a strong online presence but still amazon is just such a nimble operator moves so much faster that uh, we'll see it's a uh, between those is Battle of the Giants and some other retail providers are trying to survive. The yeah. way to survive, the way to survive is being innovative. For example, uh, Warby Parker that sells uh, eyeglasses. They they have stores, but the stores are just show, showcases. It's just you go there, you test. You know, they give you an eye test. You get your glass. You know. You, you bring your prescription. You 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 get your uh, uh, the glasses that you like. You don't buy it at the store. It's two days later. It is sent to you from a warehouse. So it is just to uh, something to choose from. That's all. Yeah. So uh, so people are trying all all kind of models, but uh, Alibaba, JD.com. Uh, and uh, and Amazon in particular are the most innovative companies out there, and the pressure keeps going. For example, Amazon with the Echo and with the uh, simple ordering and all that. It's uh, um, companies are having tough time catching with them. Yes, oh, excellent examples, and I can share. I mean, since I'm uh, spending a lot of time in in Asia, I'm based in Asia, um, and and you may know in in uh, in the Alibaba world and in the JD.com world in China, they they did the same. They acquired massive uh, amounts of mom and pop shop. If you know the concept, I mean, it's smaller shops. It's smaller oh yeah, supermarkets. oh yeah. Um, and it's it's incredible the 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 performance that they're reaching. I mean, basically, Amazon can do it in two hours in US. They can do it in half an hour to forty five minutes, and they can actually even basically at you're at home, and you can order uh, fish, and they cut the fish for you, and they deliver the fish to your door at your doorstep within thirty to forty five minutes. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, and this 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 is uh, this is mind blowing. So the retailers really need to up their game um, because. Um, yeah, these guys are extremely. Yeah. And, and it's and it's very hard to up the game because at this point they have almost insurmountable advantage because those company being Alibaba, JD.com, or Amazon have so much data that they can apply AI and uh, pattern recognition to these immense data points and get even better by knowing when the cust- what the customers want even before the customers know what they want. Yeah. So they can. Uh, push the stuff into forward location because they know that somebody who just ordered A is going to order B and C within the next day or two. Yes. So they, they can get ready for it because it, it, the, the amount of data this company, because of the size, is so vast that the new technologies, they can get advantage of new technology in a way that a, a new startup cannot because they don't have the data. Yes. Um, and just just before, because we, we'll talk a little bit. Uh, I mean, we'll talk more about the new technologies and all this 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 um, interesting developments, blockchain, AI, and, and all of that. But I wanted to, and a very good question what that was asked was, what are some of the you know what are some of the key challenges and the key issues that are currently uh, happening in in companies and in MNCs and their supply chain, which maybe are a little bit overseen. I mean, what do we mean by that? I mean, sometimes we we talk about AI or we talk about blockchain, but in in actuality, right, a lot of manufacturing companies or a lot of even 3PLs, they struggle with 
getting accurate data in the first place, right? So, I mean, they, they are not geared up. They're not Amazon. They're not uh, Alibaba. And they're not geared up. They have a lot of legacy systems. So, they're their problem is a very fundamental problem. You know, how do we get uh, accurate and clean data? So I'm just wondering, are there some other patterns? Are there some other challenges or, or struggles that you see very fundamental? I mean, this is this is fundamental and basic struggles that you see across supply chains. Yeah, of course, you're absolutely right. Uh, get In some sense, it's uh, relatively easy for Amazon to get data because the data that they need to get is mostly demand data. They are selling to consumers. They have, they own the data. Um, they need, they are not manufacturers, so they don't have a big bill of material. They don't have, you know, 10 tier supply chain deep into God knows where. Uh, so the problem for them, Amazon, Alibaba, Genesis.com, all these guys, is simpler than for General Motors or Unilever or uh, Nike. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's easier, but companies, as you say, are struggling with this. Companies are struggling with political changes. I mean, Brexit, uh, Donald Trump, you know, now we have tariffs. Uh, we may go into a, a trade war, NAFTA. I mean, uh, auto mm. company, for, for many auto companies, the, uh, you know, the U.S. And, and Mexico are so integrated in terms of automobile production that many parts cross the border four, five, six times before they're put into a car. Because several different factories are doing different processes on this uh, on this part, being engine, transmissions, whatever. You. So now uh, it's not clear what will happen. Every time they cross the border in each direction, they have to pay you know tariffs. Uh, it, it's it's not clear what's going on, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And by the way, because of this uncertainty, companies are holding investments. Companies are not investing, are not building new plants. In this case, in this part of the world, in Canada or Mexico, because they are waiting to see what's what's going to happen. Uh, so there's the this uncertainty. The the long the, there's some long term trend. You know, uh, the world is getting older, at least in the uh, in the developed market, uh, as well as in China. Japan is of course a case in point, but all over the world in. Uh, in Europe, even in the United States now, in Canada, this population is getting older, presents its own, uh, its own challenge of how to get to the consumer. We talked about the uh, global warming. Uh, that's a long-term trend. Who knows what's, uh, what's happening there. In many parts of the world, infrastructure is deteriorating and there's no money to fix it, including the United States. Yes, uh, yes. So... Uh, all these are, uh, are challenges that uh, companies have to deal with. And, and the, main, the main worry is that technology is moving now at the breakneck speed. We are going to have uh, autonomous car and 3D printing and blockchain and, and lots of stuff, and, you know, Internet of Things. How to use all this and how to make sure that the company doesn't fall behind. And you, you made an excellent point that uh, um, for many companies, just getting accurate data is still an issue. Even today, uh, we're talking about Internet of Things, but just getting data about what's going on is still an issue. And in, people also forget that in many parts of the world, going through customs is still a paper-based process with lots of copies that go to every person and duplicative process, very inefficient. So hope spring is uh, spring eternal, but companies, while, while they're worrying about the, you know, Logistics 4.0 or Industry 4.0, they have to worry about the blocking and tackling. Yes, 
Yes, much more basic and fundamental um, questions. And also, I think a, a word that is being thrown around, and I mean, everybody's talking about it across industries and then across in supply chain, is supply chain digitization, right? So this is the key topic, right, for many organizations. Um, and a very good question that we got from Naveen. Uh, he was asking, uh, with this uh, supply chain digitization happening, will the supply chain function move from a back office cost center type of uh, role to a front office revenue generation type of a role? I think it's actually already happening. It, it, it happened. I, I've been in this business for longer than I care to uh, to remember. But uh, it used to be that, uh, first of all, there were separate functions, transportation, warehousing, distribution, procurement. In many companies, these are all come under supply chain management, um, including manufacturing. And in many companies, the chief supply chain, even the, the title of chief supply chain officer is something that's, you know, became common, at least in the United States and, and Europe, in the last uh, five to ten years. But uh, I think the change was made by companies like uh, like Walmart. Um, the success of Walmart, if you think about what Walmart does, Walmart is actually a logistics company. They don't make anything. They just buy it better, move it better, store it better, distribute it better. So uh, at the lowest cost. And the success of Dell with their uh, postponement model of, of a few years ago. So people started seeing that the supply chain management can bring revenue and can be a competitive advantage. And in, in leading companies, chief supply, chief supply chain officers are actually have a, a seat at the table. And by the way, the CEO of Apple was the chief supply chain officer. Tom Cook was the chief supply chain officer of Apple, became the CEO. In Walmart, almost every CEO used to come from the uh, of supply chain function. So we see it happening already. I don't think it's tied to uh, digitization. It's tied mm-hmm. more to, global, to globalization and the fact that it becomes where you buy, how you sell, how you distribute, where you're manufacturing is becoming a competitive advantage. So supply chain management people are at the decision-making table more and more with and without digitization. Yes, yes. And I mean, I, I want to add another name, which I, I think she's done a tremendous, uh, actually two names, tremendous uh, roles. So one is Annette Clayton, who, well, she still has the head of chief supply chain officer at Schneider Electric. And now she's also the CEO of uh, Schneider Americas. And then uh, Pierre Luigi Sigismondi, who was the chief supply chain officer of uh, Unilever. Now he's, uh, he's running a big chunk of the world in, in Asia. So uh, definitely that uh, shift from uh, chief supply chain officer of becoming a CEO of a business is happening more and more because they're yeah. uh, recognizing the strategic importance of the functions. Um, and and then uh, we we got a very good question from Lin Chia. I mean, I think uh, and I, I read. I mean, I I think it's one of the fastest books that I've read. I need to pass you a compliment, Professor. The Power of Resilience, which is a, which is your book. I read it in a day. It's a, it's a fantastic oh. book. And, and in, yeah, it's. I mean, it's such a practical uh, uh, book that that uh, that is very easy to read and it's very fascinating and and, and informative, of course. Uh, so Lin Chia and I think a lot of people have read it. Lin Chia is asking. Uh, it's been two years since The Power of Resilience was published. Um, um, 
So she's wondering, how has the type of supply chain risks that threaten large organizations shifted? Uh, are there some new developments? Because now we have more I- IoT, we have more Internet of Things, we have more artificial intelligence. Um, are there uh, more uh, or different technologies used by companies to mitigate this type of risks? Maybe if you have some examples. Yes, yes, yes. Some of the uh, big changes are the maturing of um, alert technologies. So uh, there are several several providers, um, Resilink and uh, others, uh, one come to mind, Resilink, because it was uh, founded by a former student of ours. But um, these are companies that they look at, they do the following. They take data from events around the world, a fire somewhere, accident somewhere, whatever. Then they map on this the location of a company um, facilities, whether it be plants or warehouses, and the facilities of their suppliers. And they tie to the bill of material and they say, okay, these suppliers make part ABC that go to customers XYZ. And then they, they, they say, okay, the, the, um, a, the value at risk, if something happens to this plant, then this supplier, then this customer and this customer who give a, from whom we get that much money is at risk. So what happened is when there's, a, let's say, an earthquake somewhere, they can immediately say, okay, we have these parts are, we're not going to have them for two weeks, three weeks. These are, the, these are the customers that are at risk, and these are the value that is at risk. So they can actually um, rank the, the, uh, the customer at risk and decide which customer we should pay attention to, which customer we should focus on, which customers we should find immediately replacement for, and which customers can wait a little bit. So this ability to manage when something happens is uh, something that is growing, and many, many companies are using this type of software. They have several competitors. Um, so this is very uh, – this is some – a big advancement in the last few years. I talk about in the in the power of resilience. I just mentioned it at that time when that book came out. These were relatively new and just emerging technology. They are now becoming real, uh, really mature and uh, being used uh, all over the place. In addition to this, companies are becoming more aware of uh, of risks. So, for example, we talked before about the. About sustainability, more and more companies are partnering with um, NGO in order to educate each other. So, for example, Walmart partner with the Environmental Defense Fund, and the EDF has six people in Bentonville, in Florida, just to make them understand that they cannot change on a dime. So, for example, the EDF people now understand that Walmart can change suppliers only during contract time. So don't bug them during the midlife of a, of a contract. They can't do anything about it. But two, three months before a contract, a contract is up, you may want to talk to them. You may want, to, to under, you may want them to understand that there may be some uh, uh, alternative suppliers, whatever. So companies are getting more and more tight, and they start try using NGOs like they used to have, like they deal with the media. Most big companies have a PR and media uh, people who used to deal with the media worry about what the company looks like in the media. Many companies have just as big department dealing with NGOs. So this is in terms of uh, 
um, sustainability and in general corporate social responsibility risk. Then, of course, companies are uh, you know lobbying government in order to avoid political risks. So right now in the United States, uh, as you know, the Trump administration is uh, is all up in the air about what will happen with NAFTA. So companies are trying to work with the government to make sure that the uh, that U.S. does get out of NAFTA, or if it does get out of NAFTA, that there's some replacement agreement. So companies are much more working with the government closely. And the big change is that technology companies are doing it. Technology companies like Google and Facebook didn't used to deal with the government at all. But in the last uh, five, ten years, they realized that regulation and government intervention can be a big risk. So these are some of the examples of companies that are getting more attuned with possible risks. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for that. And and there is a there is a I mean a question coming back to, to resilience is and and it's a very big picture question. Uh, it's it's from Roxanne, um, uh, and actually Roxanne is leading a, a major major supply chain organization here in Asia Pacific. And and she was wondering how do you actually evaluate how much resilience you need in an organization? I mean, it's a very big question. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I guess. It's, it's more a matter of, uh, I mean, um, and I, I know her company very well, and it's, it's a very established company, um, and they're doing well. Uh, but I guess her point is, you know, uh, what would be, uh, from a layman terms, what would be some of the key indicators that you look at to kind of determine that, that, that level of resilience you need? Okay, that's, the, uh, that's a tough question because I, I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer. The que- but le- I, the question I ask us is, number one, how do you evaluate how much insurance you buy? When you buy insurance, the insurance company would love to sell you more insurance, but you, you don't. You somehow get the, an estimate or uh, some idea of what do you want to uh, to insure against? In the same way, you should think about what do you what are you most afraid of and what do you want to insure against, and how much it's going to cost you to insure. The problem with insurance, as it is with resilience, is that the costs of preparation are real and are now, while in the best of all worlds, you're not going to use it. Nothing will happen, and you're never going to use it. So it's a tough it's a tough decision. What I, what I would generally argue is that uh, you may want to replace some insurance with resilience, with being more flexible, being more agile, being able to respond faster, having um, multiple suppliers, because insurance by its very nature is an adversarial process. If something happened, now you have to sue the insurance company for them to pay, they don't want to pay, it's Resilience is a company innate capabilities. I mean, you have it, and you have it in case, uh, not only in case something bad happened, but in case something good happened. If demand goes up significantly for, for a new product that you didn't anticipate, being agile, being flexible helps you provide the market with a product even though you did not anticipate it. So it's very hard to say... Um, you know how much how much resilience you need. There are many, of course, facets of resilience. But I would say, think about insurance. How much insurance you need, and how much resilient, how much insurance you can replace replace with more resilience. Yes. 
No, excellent analogy. I mean, it's really very good analogy. I'll, I'll use it from from now on. Thank you for that. It's 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 really it really <laughs> yeah, it really uh, drills the point, and it's uh yeah, it makes it make it makes it simple to uh, to think about it. And of course, different companies will have different risks, right? And will have different uh, of course, needs. of course. And you're right. I mean, oh. it cannot be one size fits all. It's just like with humans as well. I mean, the yeah, depending on your on your uh, on your circumstances. But um, yeah, thank you for that great analogy. Um, and I need to I need to speak. A little bit and we have uh, professor rajiv professor rajiv basically runs a supply chain um, mba here in singapore for one of the business schools um and he had a question regarding uh, your book logistic clusters where you basically um, applauded singapore as one of the most successful logistics clusters in the world um obviously you may know there's a there's a huge drive in singapore for smart city for digitization for smart nation for uh, systems for intelligent solutions um so uh, government the government is doing a lot uh, about transforming Singapore uh, through technology um, and digital innovation. So in your perspective, would this, uh, of course, it, it's the, the, the normal, uh, normally that this would help Singapore, but how would this add, let's say, to Singapore's status as one of the global leaders in the uh, logistics space? Okay. Uh, most of the, most of the uh, digital move right now in Singapore, the, the, the smart city drive and, and others are the smart nation drive, are head are dealing with consumers and consumers and drivers and dealing with the you know people uh, population dealing uh, with the government through technology. This just makes life in Singapore more pleasant. Um, the the port itself is already a leading port in terms of technology. It already almost everything that could be done with technology is done with technology, and I I don't think this particular. Is, We'll have Singapore is already ahead of many other ports in the world. Let me put it this way: eighty-five percent of the uh, goods that come into Singapore airport never enter Singapore; they just transship and go go elsewhere. So uh, this is already done with a lot of digital help. So I, I'm not sure that making uh, you know the smart nation drive or the smart city drive are going to make a big difference uh, difference there. Yes. If at all, it will be easier to get in and out of warehouses, but most of those are close to the port anyway, so it's not something that will have big effect uh, in the city. In fact, a lot of places, I've been to Panama, I've been to, you know, I, I work with the Panamanian, I work with uh, you know, Colombia and many other ports. They're looking up to Singapore and Rotterdam, I would say, Singapore and Rotterdam are the two leading ports in the world and uh, in terms of uh, digitization. And, uh, but Singapore is still the number one in terms of uh, everything that's, that's done. This is just part of it. Yes. Um, and now the, 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 the question that a lot of, I mean, I think I've, I've had at least 10 or 20 people asking this question. <laughs> so we need to talk about it, Professor. Um, what's the impact of blockchain on supply chain and transportation? I think it's on everybody's <laughs> lips. Everybody talks about it. Probably this, this, there's two terms, right? There's blockchain and there's uh, artificial intelligence that come up again and again and again. Okay. These are two different things. So let's first yeah. of all talk about blockchain. Uh, we at CTL actually come as a surprise. We don't think there'll be the impact that people are talking about. People are talking about it will change everything. We just don't see it at this point. Uh, the technology will have to be much better 
before it can be used everywhere. The problem is each for you can use it in terms a company can use it. And by the way, whatever blockchain does, which is distributed databases, uh, making sure that the um, uh, transaction or records cannot be changed. If, if you change, you take, you have to create another record that shows the change so you have a um, clear path to, to audit everything. Okay. And, and it's hard to change, by the way, because all the, all the participants in the network have to agree to something in order to make sure that it's a valid, um, valid transaction. Let me, in order to give you the, 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 to show you why we think it's uh, still far, aside from one company, for, for, for example, I know some school, MIT now, I don't know if it's more just to do it, puts the, our, our transcript on a blockchain and we give the key to every student so they can, they can do it. But think about it. We can also just give them a password to some database of MIT and they can show everybody yes. their, uh, their grade. Uh, we do it in blockchain because it's kind of cool. But uh, I, I, we don't see and This is easy to do. When people talk about the real promise of blockchain, they talk about being able to move throughout the supply chain, which is really a supply network of many, many suppliers, many industries, to move it, to move a transaction and being able to trust it. So first of all, we need to create industry standards. And creating industry standards is a thankless, long-term task that may or may not work. But in order to show you why we see, why we're not totally excited about it, think about, you know, American Express or Visa or MasterCard. You are, you don't have, when I deal, when I buy something from Alibaba or some, some, somebody, somebody who sells something on Alibaba, or anybody on, on the internet, I buy from somebody that I don't know, I don't have to trust, nothing. I don't have to deal with them. Why? Because MasterCard is in the middle. MasterCard deal with the banks, MasterCard deal with me, MasterCard deal with the merchant. And what MasterCard provide me is the fact that if something goes wrong, I don't have to get to ask for my money back from the merchant to find who he is and all this. MasterCard will do it for me. MasterCard American Express, Visa, they'll do it for me. They'll go and talk to the merchants. They'll go. Now I'm thinking about, okay, let's replace this, as people are talking about, with let's take the uh, intermediary, intermediary out of this and replace it with a machine, basically. That, uh, yes, it will record a transaction, but... The problem is that the, the what do, what do we do if there's a uh, if the digital transaction and the physical item are not the same? Somebody said I'll send you three items A and they send you two B and one C. Mm. What do you do? Who, who are you calling now? You cannot call Mastercard. There's no Mastercard. You call a computer. What do you do? So in some sense, it's the opposite of what people think. You need more trust rather than less trust. So it's, it's not as simple as people think. There, there are cases, simple cases, when you can go, for let me give you a case that it could be used. If governments will decide, if the Port of Singapore will decide that they, they can put the bill of lading on, somebody puts, puts the bill of lading on a blockchain, it flows to the port and it comes out and they can, they can trust it. But the question is, 
The guy who started the process, the guy did the pig farm in China, who put two pigs instead of three and recorded three and nobody knew about it. And now it goes to the system as three. And only when it gets to Singapore and it, they open the container, they see that it's only two. What do they do now? Uh, okay. It's a... Uh, all of these are questions that are not solved yet. And people can, between two parties, it's, it, it's not a problem. But this process is at this point slow. The distributed process that every computer has to, uh, if, if there's a network, even if everybody agrees, every computer has to update itself in a replication process or other process. So it's uh, time consuming. It takes a lot of computer resources. We are not sold about it mm. for supply for supply chain at least. We, we we see clearly why you know cryptocurrency works, kind of. Mm. But uh, in terms of supply chain, I think we're pretty far from, uh, as they said, change everything. To us, it looks more like uh, if people who are old enough or not old enough to recall the RFID. You yes. know, movement. Yes. When everybody was talking about RFID, it's going to change everything. The world is going to change. Supply chain are going to be better. Even companies like big companies signed up on this Walmart and Procter and Gabriel and many others. And and then we found out, yeah, it has some niche uses, but it's not used all over the place. It has some niche uses in some cases, but that's about it. We think that blockchain is in the same category. It will have some niche uses. Two companies, very when you have a, you know diamonds or very uh, uh, expensive product distributed by De Beers, who's you know the biggest in the market. Yeah, they can they can use it in order to tie the and, and the, everything goes to one place. So when De Beer ties the um, digital record to the actual item, okay, they are responsible for it, and from that point they move together. But uh, in many other cases, there's no single point that does all this. You need standards, and everybody has everybody has to trust. So I'm, we're not sure. Mm. No. Sorry for not sorry, sorry for not being the rara rara enthusiast, but that's how we feel at least here about it. No, oh, and look, and uh, it's very it's very interesting perspective. And thank you for sharing your your open thoughts because uh, I mean, I, I personally I go to a lot of conferences, and I mean, if you if you open the media, if you open the LinkedIn, if you open so I mean Facebook, I mean sometimes even Facebook, um, there's so much talks, and every almost every article has you know blockchain this, blockchain that. Uh, uh, but you, you you do raise a very interesting uh, and valid point that uh, yes, uh, probably it will have an impact, but uh, we are far away. Well, relatively far away from it and in again in the practicality and it kind of links back to the to the supply chain and sustainability side isn't it right i mean in practicality and, and yes. in reality i mean uh, do we really i mean i know actually there's some steps uh, and we're going to have a very interesting podcast with ibm that's going to talk specifically about the different blockchain implementations that they have already done so I'm looking really forward to that. But uh, again, there's, there's uh, far and few between. I mean, there's not so many yet. Uh, when you talk to IBM, press them. Or when they said they're done, I've listened to IBM many times. And that, ask them with what is done and what is done in terms of a test. What is done in production and what is done in test. And why many of the tests are not going to production. Mm-hmm. So... Because a lot, a lot, a lot of their examples are people who are testing some on a small scale rather than production. 
Anyway, I will, I will, I will jot that down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Final, final question on this segment, and then we move on to the to the to the last question. So, um, uh, Brita had uh, had, uh, and he was she was talking a little bit about you know you mentioned Walmart. Uh, a lot of global retail companies are trying to build their own supply chain logistics net network. Uh, on the other side, you have Alibaba and Amazon and JD.com really investing hard in in buying their own fleets and trucks and planes and ships and and so on. How do you see this impacting the business model of 3PLs? Do, will they take them out? Will they badly impact them? Will they coexist? How will it work? Look, uh, I, I think I, I think they'll coexist. I don't think it will be. There's still lots and lots of small companies, and many more so all the time, that need they cannot function without third-party logistics. What will happen is. And by, and by the way, many other companies like, uh, you know, automotive companies or large companies or Unilever or Procter & Gamble or Intel or whatever, they're not getting into this. It's only the e-commerce giants are getting into this. And surely um, providers like UPS and uh, FedEx may lose some business because they they may lose some of the business that Amazon does on its own, whether it's through plane and through the last mile distribution they do a lot of uh, a lot of their own but uh, so but 3pl still have a vast number of companies who will need their services so i don't see a the big risk for the uh, for the 3pl i just don't see it. what will happen is as these things grow as uh, you know the the logistics pro- the logistics um, ability of uh, Alibaba or JD or Amazon grow, they may start offering it to other companies and may start competing with the 3PL. So this is just another competitor in the marketplace. I don't see why they'll be particularly better than UPS or FedEx. Maybe they will be, but the technology of trucking and warehousing is there. Most More and more people are using robotics in warehouses, not only these guys. There are companies who provide this now. So I, there will be some competitors, but there are always competition. So I, I don't see it as a fundamental shift. Yes. Yes, I think that's that's reassuring for a lot of the three PL uh, uh, audience that, that is listening to us. <laughs> Thank you for that, <laughs> because there's a lot of gloom and doom type of uh, scenario. No, 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 no. Just another another competitor. Hey, just beat them. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> um, excellent. So uh, moving on to the segment. I mean, we do executive search. We place uh, we place uh, and, and and recruit people for top multinationals, and we talk a lot a lot about um, uh, chief supply chain officers. What do they need to have? What what type of skill sets, what type of mindset do they need to have? We live in the age of digitization, machine learning, AI, robotics. In your views, uh, what's, what's some of the key attributes that you see future and now uh, chief supply chain officer needing to have in order to be successful? Okay. It's not much different than, than before, but in the, in the following sense, they have to be, first of all, good managers, good people, good people, people, you know, uh, understand people, understand how to motivate people, understand that, what you might call standard excellent managers. They need to understand the new technology. They don't, I don't, I don't think people should be computer scientists in order to run, you know, a 3PL or, or something. They should just understand what can offer. This can be done. The beauty of it can be done with online uh, courses from everywhere. Just understand the technology, what it can offer, what it cannot offer. So you cannot be snowed 
by your IT people, in fact, or by a consultant that, uh, uh, that comes to you. So you need to understand uh, what AI is and is not, what blockchain is and is not, what 3D printing can and cannot do, and in what time frame, when autonomous vehicles may become, may become an issue. But just, just being able to watch it or having people around you who can watch it. Um, but I, I, I don't think that people should become technocrats, understand only uh, come from computer science in order to be able chief supply to be able to be a successful chief supply chain officer because it is still a people and process and management business more than anything more than the technology. Technology is one aspect of it and it's changing for sure, but uh, everything is changing. People expectations are changing, policies are changing, regulation are changing. So what else is no? Mm, mm, correct. And, and and looking at the other scale of the spectrum, right? So on the one side, you see the, the top of the pyramid that you supply chain officer. On the other side, obviously, you're, you're a professor. You're very closely linked and training the future bright minds in the, in the, in the um, uh, supply chain field. Um, it would be interesting to know which are the most relevant skills companies that you see are, are looking for in fresh graduates, right? So And maybe if there's a difference like in Asia versus Europe versus uh, US? Okay. Uh, I don't think that most of the people who hire here are multinationals and they'll hire somebody here to work in Asia, to work in Europe, to work in South America. So I'm not sure that I can that companies are that much difference. But what what this and, and I must also qualify that says that we are dealing with large companies. People who recruited MIT are large companies. Uh, it's, it's Amazon and Apple and, uh, you know, Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Intel and UPS and FedEx. These are the people who, uh, who recruit here. They are looking for technology know-how. They are looking to being able to analyze data. Very important. So, um, of, of course, understand logistics and supply chain. They are also looking for the soft skills. Should be able to uh, give a talk. Should be able to uh, work in a team. Should be, all the soft skills that we always talked about are still very important, and people are still looking at this. But the the requirement just grow. Uh, there's also another thing that we also tell people because we can't teach everything, of course, during uh, somebody's master. They spend a year with us for for a master, so. We can teach everything. We tell them that one of the most important thing is lifelong learning for this uh, young younger recruit. Make sure that you, and, and in fact, we tell our students go only to companies who promise that they'll allow you to continuously learn and go to courses and and grow. So, and this is our our, our message both to companies and to our students that. Uh, the world changes and while we the mo- mostly what we are trying to give them is the ability to learn that being open and being able to learn whether it's uh, how to negotiate or what's inside the blockchain whatever um okay so basically um a question that was um that was uh, around the skills and uh um, uh, especially for the young uh, generation, right? So basically, uh, in terms of the people that uh, that are graduating from MIT, uh, what do you see, Professor, as the most relevant skills companies are looking in fresh graduates? And, and maybe if you can tell us a little bit, uh, US versus Europe versus Asia. Okay, I'm... Uh... 
as you know, most of the people who, uh, most of the companies who recruited MIT are large multinational companies who recruit for all over the world. And I don't think it's very different in terms of uh, what they're looking for. Um, they're looking for, I define it as all of the above. They're looking for technical uh, powers. They're looking for uh, uh, of course, understanding logistics, supply chain management, where it's inventory planning, you know, network design, uh, procurement, distribution, manufacturing, what have you. They are looking for being able to have the soft skills, being able to uh, to work in a team, being able to, you know, uh, explain what they're talking about, being able to write, so some communication skills. And mostly what we're telling them telling both our graduates and the companies who are recruiting here that the most important thing is lifelong learning, which is now cheap and easy to do because of uh, MOOCs, because of online learning. There are courses for free or for very low cost around the world. Uh, not only MIT, lots of other places are uh, offering courses. And one can, because the world is changing. The world is changing because technology is changing, policies are changing, processes are changing, competition is changing. So lifelong learning, being able to understand new phenomena, understand how to get into new uh, new area, is the most important uh, characteristics of uh, companies when they recruit. And we tell, we tell our students that's what they should be looking for when they are looking at the company and decided which company to work for. Yes. Yes, um, and, and and how do you see? I mean, in in and and, and will will um, I mean in reality uh, education now? So we're preparing people for, and they we're teaching them skills and mindsets in school. But then by the end of the even sometimes by the end of the education process, technology would have would have changed. And and there is a, a certain uh, gap. Uh, one of one of uh, one of our listeners, John Hancock, was wondering: there is a challenge today in closing that gap between what's needed now and what the education system is producing, and what's be, Going to be needed in in a few years. What's your what's your future vision of uh, supply chain and logistics education? Well, I, as I said, the most important thing is continuing lifelong lifelong learning, continuing to take uh, online courses, come to executive courses, being able to renew oneself all the time. Otherwise, one becomes redundant. Really, one becomes uh, irrelevant to the company and. Uh, that's usually lead to end of careers. So being a, being always fresh on the technology, on processes, on what what the competition is doing, everything, going to conferences, taking courses, very important all the time. That's the only the only way to keep on top of the changing world. Yes, but if I can just drill a little bit with, with an example, because I know that MIT sits on, on I mean, basically everybody regards, regards you as the pinnacle of, of education, of system, of engineering schools. How do you do it at MIT in terms of uh, maybe some examples of keeping yourself from uh, teaching students and methods and, and practicalities and case studies? How do you continuously evolve this to make sure that you're giving them the best, um, uh, let's say, um, ways in which they can learn? Okay. First of all, MIT is a research institute, first and mm. foremost. It's actually not an educational institute. It's a research institute that has a school tied to it. So in that sense, we always have the current research, which is usually a leading, uh, you know, uh, leading ideas and very much 
flows back back to the classroom. Another thing that we have is uh, at, at CTL, the Center for Transportation Logistics, and other parts of MIT, but uh, in our case, we have 55 companies who are partners with us. We do a lot of activities with them. Our students are supposed to do the thesis with them when they work on their um, master thesis, so it's a, always real problems. It keeps people grounded in what's really happening in industry, and at the same time, they understand what's happening in the research world, which is, let's say, three, five years, ten, sometimes ten years ahead, what's, what may be coming. So <clears throat> this combination kind of gives them an idea of what's actually happening on the ground and what may be happening a few years down the road. Yes. Yes, super. Final question, uh, and just going back to to the massive open online course or MOOC, as as we call them. And also, I need to, I need to, uh, I need to share this because uh, the question was from Yasir, and he was actually saying that uh, will universities and will will even MIT go completely digital, or will it coexist with on-campus education? Will all these open online courses you think they will take over completely, or will it be kind of a hybrid model? Where do you see the future going? Okay, I can give you my own view, of course, not the MIT view. And um, so I think that uh, depending what you're looking at, I think that the undergraduate education is uh, not only acquiring knowledge, but it's growing up. It's living home, growing up. So depending in areas, for example, in countries that have a um, military service, that people must go to military service, it's less important because people grow up in the military. They, you know, mature there. They spend three, four, five years in the military, and then they go to school. Uh, so they don't have to go to school in the same way that people 18 years old leave home and go to school to spend four years and kind of mature. So in, in the uh, say American system where there's no required service, but people at 18 go to college, one can probably... Uh, shorten it to uh, to three years from four years or to two years from from four years because uh, if you think about calculus physics uh, lots of subjects chemistry lots of these subjects don't change very quickly so there's no reason not to teach them online and then teach more advanced courses when they're more tied to uh, say current trend and ongoing research bring people for the last three or two, two or three years of, of undergraduate. I think that master and professional education, professional education is, I define it as a usually master level courses, master level programs, master level degrees for people who want to go to industry, not people who want to do research. People who want to go to industry. For them, I think it will go to totally online at the end. Uh, the online is becoming better and better, and there are even some indication that people learn better online. So I think uh, while we still believe at MIT in a blended model, for example, you know, if people take all our five courses, what we call MicroMaster, all, all five courses, take the exam, take the final exam, they can apply to MIT and several other universities and get a master in one semester. Because in the one semester residential part, we do case studies that are better doing in person and online because the technology is not uh, perfected yet. We do some teamwork. We do other things that are easier to do online. But long term, I think that professional education, master level education will go to uh, 
to totally online. In terms of PhD level, again, it's a tiny different model because it's more of an apprenticeship model. You have one, two, three students uh, as a professor who work with you, and it takes uh, three to five years to work. And this apprenticeship model, people can uh, people do benefit a lot, the students, from residential, or at least partly residential, or uh, a continuous a combination of residential and work. Uh, so I think residential will not go away on the PhD level and on large part of the undergraduate level. So this is probably a more detailed answer that you were looking for, but that's what I feel like. No, I appreciate it. appreciate it. And uh, of course, uh, it, it may not be a popular answer with some of your colleagues even, <laughs> but uh, definitely maybe not so, some of the community. It is not. It is not. Look, I, it is, for a fact, I know that it's not. So it's not like uh, you, uh, you assume it, but uh, most colleagues at MIT and elsewhere are not signing up for uh, for this idea, but enough of us do. So I think it's, it's it will grow. Yes, yes, and I mean definitely also a very big uh, shout out to our to our audience because they should uh, go online and 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 go on the MIT website and check out uh, the different uh, the different open online courses that you have because it's very Absolutely. interesting. Um, you also have a, a podcast for the for the MIT yourselves, and it's it's extremely valuable and a great source of inspiration. And uh, and I think most uh, most importantly, and based on the conversation that we've had uh, today, I want to urge our listeners to uh, to go and check out your latest book um, and, and and buy it and, and read it because I think it's a very good um, it's a very good read through as well as a um, uh, comprehensive uh, uh, comprehensive summary of all that is happening in the sustainability field um, Professor Sheffi thank you so much for your time thank you for for sharing all the insights with us and it's been a pleasure to have you uh, with us today thank you very much Radu I enjoyed doing it Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast. And if you have any suggestions or any other idea, please feel free to write to me. I respond to all. And also, please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other C-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us. Stay tuned.